0: It's Yolo Kali. What's
1: up? What's up? The following program was brought to you by Yolo Kali. Keeping it weird since 1997. Oh. <laughs> Who's that? Who are you? You're not allowed to be in here.
2: Hey, yo, somebody get their grandma. Huh? Ah! Ah! Now nah, you got to do it like this. <laughs>
1: What's Up is back with another two hours of fully youth-produced content, tapping into the matters and concerns of youth in Chicago.
0: As well as all the crazy, wacky, tea-sipping, gossip-spilling, weird shenanigans that we, youth, get up to.
3: Listen to your own risk, because your mind might explode. The chances are low,
1: but never zero. So strap in, and let's get into the show!
0: What's up on WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio, and this is the humans of the fashion industry. In this show, we will be speaking with various members of Chicago's fashion scene from designers to store owners and even consumers themselves, discussing the topics of thrifting, fast fashion, clothing production, and the fashion of the future. Stay tuned for what these fashion forward individuals have to say about the world of fashion in Chicago. Have we used the word fashion enough?
2: hello everybody my name is emmanuel and i will be hosting our first conversation we have for humans of the fashion industry up first we have a very special guest somebody that i love dearly she has her own jewelry business she is a stylist she's a professional instagram baddie and she is none other than Zapora Auda. could you start by telling me a little bit about you
4: hello my name is Zippora. i'm 19 years old I am a freshman at Harold Washington College. I work at Akira and I have a small business. I make handmade jewelry and accessories.
2: For, um, Before we even get into this, I just want to remind the audience, me and Zippy are friends for a really <laughs> long time. And I think that'll be apparent throughout our conversation. We've known each other since kindergarten? First grade? Since
4: kindergarten.
2: Yeah, so that is about 37 years. When you were Miss Lopez's years. class. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Miss Lopez. And I want to kind of go back to your earlier years if we will um i want to talk about your
4: Um, what
2: was kind of some of your first experiences being exposed to fashion in general and kind of what's your your history with your admiration with fashion
4: i think that sometimes when i was younger like me and like my siblings we would like watch like You know, back then, like the DVDs of different, whether it was like someone's album or something like that. And like sometimes they had a visual, which is actually something I don't even think about that. That is something that like people don't do anymore. Like they don't have like their visual albums. Like I feel like that was a thing. Right. But like, you know, like the CDs of like their music videos, all that stuff and whatever. I would really like that we would definitely me and my sister would be pretending to be the background (laughs) singers or like whether it was that or like a fashion show that like we would see on tv just like randomly when you're flipping the channels or whatever or I would you know like tie blankets and like try to make like different dresses different things out of the blanket and pretend that it was a runway things like that or like taking a plastic bag and like cutting out the leg cones and kind of making it like a jumpsuit or whatever from a plastic bag. I feel like that's kind of what I think of when I think of like my very like early age and like early exposure to fashion it was definitely just like me like taking like random stuff and like trying to make it something that it's not, um, whether it's like blankets, bags, foil, whatever
2: girl fashion on a dime right (laughs) (laughs) and so uh moving into later stages what are were some of your more teenage inspirations or favorite fashion pages or models or brands
4: for me like it's not like my parents were like rich as hell and whatever and like me just the person I am like I definitely don't like to feel like a burden on anyone. (laughs) Not that my parents made me feel like burden, like a burden, they definitely did not. But I feel like consciously I made a decision to save money in like the ways that I can. I've also always been resourceful. I feel like that's something that I've had like since I was a little kid, as I said before. Like, yeah, so translating into like my teenagehood, having, like, Nikes and, like, name brand and all that thing. I feel like every young person, that's something that, like, they think of. And, like, if you don't really have, like, that much money, like, that's something that, like, you, like, kind of, like, stress over at least a tiny bit. It doesn't matter. I don't care who you are. you definitely, like, thought about that and thought about if you can attain what, like, the standard of, like, gym shoes whether it's something little like that or whatever then i kind of did away with that yeah so basically me and my friend cynthia i don't even really know how it started but like we just started going thrifting together our our favorite thrift store it closed down y'all if you know it it's the one i think it's like damon and archer that family thrift right by the orange line So we would be in there and just like saying, oh, like, what if I did this with this? I could cut this, do that, that, that me and my friend Cynthia, I feel like we kind of um, started to like explore our own personal sense of style simultaneously at the same time. And that was really interesting and nice to see because our sense of style, it's definitely different but I can kind of see like us like kind of inspiring each other a little bit and it's just nice to see like someone else and their sense of style and their individuality growing with them as well and I guess um taking it to a deeper level and like kind of tying that back to what I was saying before about like the stress of like meeting standards in terms of like clothing and name brand and everything I knew that I wasn't comfortable with being like hey mom can you buy me this pair of shoes or like $200 and then can you buy me this coat and then can you buy me that if I already know that like she can't make those financial decisions comfortably um I didn't want to even ask so me being me and like just trying to be resourceful I really got the knack of just like doing what I wanted with clothes, kind of exploring my relationship with clothes because certain things weren't really accessible to me. So I would cut this, snip that, just try to look cute in my own way with what I had. And I feel like my friend Cynthia was doing the same thing as well. So it was really nice. I feel like that brought us together in a certain way because I feel like we connected over that. It's also just interesting. I feel like thrifting and like really picking out clothing items, not based on like what you saw someone do, but just like really what you like. What's your favorite color? Like what attracts you to that piece? I feel like when you're thrifting, you're really forced to do that because not everything in there is fashionable. You have to make those decisions of what you like, what catches your eye, what you do a double take on. And even if you don't like it, can you cut it, staple it, whatever you can do? (laughs) Can you do that to make it something that you would like because you like this fabric? So I feel like in that way, I kind of also like gain some knowledge about myself and like my personal sense of style and like how I want to express myself, just like moving forward in my life at that moment.
2: I also love the idea of you know, buying something thrifted and definitely the idea you said of cutting, snipping, bedazzling, like however it is that you customize it or mix matching something that you buy thrifted that maybe does give off grandma or raggedy, you know, a little bit. Yeah, but like mix matching <laughs> that with like some like nice shoes you have or a nice accessory. Uh-huh. That you have, So that mix match of yeah. like something thrifted with like a brand or something flashy. Sometimes it's like a good mix match that is like visibly appealing and like gives a good like feel to your outfit.
4: Even like when my mom started to see that like I was thrifting more, she'll be like, oh, like, no, like (laughs) just go buy some new clothes and all that. But I'm like, sorry, sis, I'm already too deep in the game.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it's not even about like not affording something. It's about, I'd rather spend my money on this because one better for the planet for the environment for Mm -hmm. clothing production but also i think it uh, it appeals to so many more youth styles more than what these fast fashion brands are doing or what these like bigger corporations are doing with fashion And so you were speaking a little bit about, uh, you and your friend Cynthia and how you guys would go thrift shopping. A little birdie out there told me, um, and that birdie is Snapchat and Instagram (laughs) social media, (laughs) um, that you guys actually in high school made your own little fashion club, like a thrift club and like would have like field trips and little events to go thrifting and little workshops to like mix match the clothing. Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
4: So me and Cynthia, we started a club at our school. Thrift Fashion Club. So there was a fashion club at our school, but we never heard anything about it.
2: Oh god, the rival club. We... Bring it on. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> fashion show against fashion I show.
4: Feel like, I feel like we actually did an event together, but or like something like that, but I don't even remember. Um, but we went to the meeting, we checked it out. Um, it was nice, but it was just like not like what we were going for. So we were like, okay, we can't do like a normal fashion club. So we were like, oh, me and you, let's do Thrift Fashion Club. Like, that's our own spin on it. It's not the same thing at all. So we made the club. We met every other week or something, or every week. And every other meeting, we would go to a different thrift store around the city of Chicago. We would have, like, forms where people could, like, submit their favorite thrift store. Or we would just research one, do a poll, anything like that. But we would just go to different thrift stores around the city um, and then our other meetings were different things like we would discuss fast fashion or we would have a DIY day or like a jewelry making day or like a clothing swap day different activities like that pertaining to fashion and thrifting or just the eco-friendly way to fashion so that club was fun nice We had our people that would come, our friends, we had different events. We actually had one event. This was like our biggest event. It was a thrift store in our cafeteria. People donated their clothes and we also had different vendors. So like students that made their own jewelry, students that like painted things like that. Some of them sold their art. We had a little makeup section where you could get your makeup done for like a couple bucks. I thought it was they were selling
2: thrifted makeup, like, like
4: oh no, things no, they no, want no, no more. No. That, would, that would be so bad.
2: Girl, so this, bad. this this blush is at the end of this life, but I don't want it no more. Three dollars.
4: Yeah, so that was fun. That was our little event. That was basically what we did. It was a fun club. I'm glad that we did it
2: and how do you think that helped kind of like in your evolution of your sense of style personally and like kind of your knowledge of fashion and i think it was in a way kind of foreshadowing what it is that you do now no
4: Mm. no yeah yeah um she said yeah no (laughs) yeah no no (laughs) No, it
2: did. Well, moving into today, you've gone from high school, you've left your thrift club behind you, and you are now a personal stylist at Akira, correct?
4: Correct so at akira i'm a stylist i approach customers and just try to help them with their shopping experience a lot of people that come to akira they come maybe for like their birthday they have a date they're going out for the weekend they have a trip things like that so um they usually have something though like certain things that they're shopping for yeah they tell you what they're doing what they're what they're here for and as a stylist i just help them pick some outfits pick some looks and just put them in what they feel good in put them in what they feel comfortable in and just yeah try to make them leave happy and feeling confident in what they're gonna wear
2: do you have any fun stories that you have with customers or maybe not so fun with just working there in general
4: I mean you know what it's always fun sometimes to just like talk to them a little bit because sometimes people will tell you they're tea (laughs) sometimes people will tell you their tea they'll be like yes I'm going to this event I'm gonna see my ex-boyfriend there and he's gonna be there with his new girlfriend so I need to be looking good he liked my butt so my butt gotta be looking good I want to look like this I want to look like that yeah I gotta flex (laughs) they'll give you the whole rundown sometimes and you're like period i i already know what you're doing or um yeah so things like that is always fun and definitely if they if they love the look that y'all collaborated to put together it's a good feeling and it's, it's nice to see them happy not so fun sometimes people are rude sometimes customers are rude everyone that works in retail and just a job where you have to constantly communicate with people yes people are rude
2: do people be like leaving messages in the uh oh
4: yes sometimes people will just be so rude and disrespectful you'll walk in they literally just put the clothes in a pile on the floor i'm like you're so dirty because do you not think that the next time you come in here you're gonna be trying on these clothes and we don't wash them yeah, maybe we'll, like, spray them down with, like, alcohol or quick mist. But we don't wash these clothes. So you're going to be putting on those dirty clothes that you just threw on the floor. So think about that. Like, do you do that in your house? Or... Sadly,
2: yes, they do. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, they do it in their house, then there's nothing even I could say. But come on now. And so
2: being that you do work at Akira, what are your thoughts on kind of this mass production and consumption especially by youth nowadays with more fast fashion corporations and how we see it online on apps like tiktok and instagram where Mm -hmm. these teens you know they do their thousand dollar clothing hauls uh just to wear those outfits once and throw them away
4: yeah and Um, kind of just
2: how unethical that is yeah
4: fashion right now is is a beep show and something needs to happen Fast. I'm sorry, I'm blaming everything on technology, but I feel like technology is to blame for this, partly, because I feel like with the rise of social media, it makes the cycle of trends shorter and shorter, because there's always something new, whether... You already know how it goes. I can't even think of some examples. And not even
2: that. Things don't even be new nowadays. Things are just reoccurring trends. No,
4: yeah. But like the trends itself, it's so fast. It's always on to the next. One day it's monochromatic. Next day it's nude. Next day it's slits or whatever, whatever. It's constantly changing. What's in fashion and what's trendy is constantly changing. And it's changing at a faster and faster rate because of social media. Because you post this picture, and now all the girls are wearing it because it's trendy, and now no one wants to wear it because everyone is wearing it. So they have to find someone something else, and then all the girls are gonna start wearing it, and no one wants to wear that anymore because everyone else already wore it. And that goes. On and on with different things. Whether first it was the feelas. You remember the white feelers The platforms. How people would be dogging girls when they had those on. Like, dang, chill. Let them wear their shoes.
2: <laughs> so with your experience at Akira and developing your own style, what do you think about how youth are experimenting with fashion more and expressing themselves nowadays?
4: I definitely love to see it. I love to see different people mix things different ways i love to see a group of young people walking down the street and like their style is different but it's all so cohesive and you can tell that they're friends just by their style i want to see more of that i want to see more of people experimenting i want to see more of people cutting their own clothes maybe sewing their own clothes getting inspiration off their friends doing clothing swaps. I feel like young people are always more influential than we actually think and more influential than like maybe older generations give us credit for and not only our generation specifically but I feel like it's always like that just because in our society they always highlight that like the youth is like the prime of your life all that stuff and the youth is always doing something whether it's bad or good it's always something about like the young people nowadays and I feel like that influences everyone else a lot more than they like to admit I feel like people doing what they want and people dressing how they want is also going to change things and it's going to change the world and just let people be more comfortable in themselves. I mean, definitely something about our generation is we're allowing people to be more themselves. We're giving people more space to express themselves. And we're saying, yes, like you're valid and your experiences are valid and who you are is valid and how you choose to express yourself is valid. And that's so, so important. I definitely have a sacred relationship with, with fashion and style and self-expression and just like an intimate um, relationship with it because I feel like at a point in my life, I didn't feel too great about myself. I didn't feel too great about the world around me. And sometimes putting on that outfit and doing my makeup was literally the motivation that I needed to get myself out of bed. At a point in time, that was a need for me. <laughs> I need I needed to look good. Because that's what I needed to get out of bed. And that's what I needed to get through the day. So that already um, makes my relationship with fashion kind of a special one. And then that slowly just changing and evolving as I changed and evolved and grew. And just seeing the way that my style changed depending on how I was and where I was in my life. I can definitely like look at my style in like different pictures and be like okay yeah that's where I was that's where I was that's where I was in life because it just it just shows to me at least for me that definitely just showed up for me yeah and finding my style helped me find myself because of that and I mean I feel like with all the talking I've done you can kind of have like a vague web of like how fashion has affected me and the role it's played in my life so far.
2: For sure. I want to move on a little bit into your jewelry business, Zipporah Creates. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
4: Yes. So right now I make handmade jewelry, earrings, necklaces, matching earring necklace sets, bracelets. Hopefully I want to expand into like other things, other accessories. Ooh. (laughs) I'm definitely trying to get back into it.
2: And what was some of your initial inspiration when starting your business?
4: There was this one time I was taking a walk because I would go on a lot of walks during quarantine, just like escape and change scenery. And I was in this little park and I was walking and it was the middle of the day and it was like really sunny out. And I remember looking down on the sidewalk and there was like broken glass everywhere and like it looked like diamonds kind of <laughs> it looked like diamonds how the, how the sun was like shining down on it and I was just like wow I was like that looks so beautiful it's like I bet like if someone like did something with that or like from like a certain angle like people would actually think they're diamonds so I picked them up picked up a couple pieces Girl, what? Did you that have gloves? I <laughs> <laughs> no, give up their hands. <laughs> I picked them up and I went home and I made some necklaces and some earrings out of them. I definitely think that my first inspiration was just like taking like random stuff and seeing what I could do with it because I mean, again, this was during quarantine. I, I couldn't go to like certain stores that I wanted to. Right now, I definitely use a lot of recycled items. Like, if I see, like, broken glass on, like, the sidewalk, and I think it's, like, a nice shape, I'll pick it up. Or if I see, like, a little pendant that someone dropped, I'll pick it up and clean it. (laughs) Or, like, rocks. I've used, like, a broken hanger before. Like, just different objects that, like, I see it and I see potential in it. I'll try to just polish it up and see what I can turn it into. Like, just moving forward. I just don't want to limit myself because I feel like these first couple of months I was trying to limit it to like earrings, necklaces, things that people know. But just moving forward I want to explore, do more body chains, maybe waist beads, belly chains, things that people haven't seen, maybe some experimental jewelry. I've been kind of scared to do that but like I may as well and I feel like I've been a little bit more picky as to like how I spend my time. So I would rather make things that I really want to make and people think is weird and they'll never wear it. Um, but maybe one day it'll be something that's in fashion. <laughs> I don't know. For sure. I'm just going to do what I want. <laughs> I love that
2: you got such inspiration from the elements surrounding you and your environment really just, letting your your community speak for itself and representing that through your your jewelry that's beautiful
4: i just want to expand and i just want to do what feels right to me at the moment i did give myself the grace of if it doesn't feel right right now to produce and to create then don't do that because that energy is needed elsewhere and when it's time for you to create you're going to know and you're going to create because I don't really plan a lot of the designs that I do. It's more of like, I'm going to make this. (laughs) I'm going to make this. I have the inspiration to make this. Let me make this. I appreciate myself for giving myself the grace of taking it at my own pace, but I also need to be more disciplined in myself and know when sometimes I need to motivate myself to do these things. And sometimes I need to channel that energy, even though it's not there ready. I need to say, hey, come here, come here real quick, cause I need you. And just finding the balance, balance is everything, so yeah.
2: And where do you see fashion in the future?
4: This world is so crazy. <laughs> Hopefully a little bit slower. Hopefully people, um, especially with climate change being something that we're seeing and we're dealing with right now. I hope that something is done to kind of control these companies. I hope that these companies reflect and see the contribution they're making to this because at the same time, consumers need to educate themselves and need to be conscious where they're putting their dollars. But at the same time, we only have so much control because people need clothes. And sometimes people don't have money. And it's such a tough loophole right now because fast fashion, you can be fashionable and you can still save money and get a lot of cheap things that is very dangerous because it's very tempting who won't want to get that cute dress for ten dollars who would not want to do that me especially when especially when you're only working a part-time job or you have to put your money here here and here there and you have bills to pay too hopefully fashion is seen more as an investment i hope that people will be more conscious of what they're buying. Be more conscious of how many times you're gonna wear something because I feel like that's something that could help a lot. Just, am I gonna wear this in a year? If not, mm, maybe not buy it. And I hope to see people valuing the people that make these clothes. And by valuing them more, that means giving them livable wages and supporting the people that are making clothes And set their price at a livable wage for themselves. And hopefully being more picking sustainable, um, eco-friendly fabrics. Just producing in a way that's a little bit more loving towards Earth than what we're doing now. And loving towards people and the people that are putting their energy into making these clothes.
2: Well, Zippy, thank you so much for... Coming on today, and for speaking with me and with the audience, I appreciate you. For Thank making you the for time.
0: having
4: me.
2: Of course. And where can people find you and your business?
4: Mm, my Instagram is Zippora Auta. Z i p p o r a h a u t a. Spelling for the children. <laughs> My website is ZaporaCreates.com and on there you can find my products and stay tuned for any upcoming events and pieces.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for being on our show, Zapora. We appreciate you so much. And this is the end of this conversation, but there is three more to be had. So definitely stay tuned for the rest of our two-hour show, What's Up Humans of the Fashion Industry. Don't forget that you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, and we'll be right back.
0: Hello, you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, and this is What's Up. Humans of the fashion industry. My name is Jennifer, and let's get into our next interview with Miguel Cervantes, owner of the store Comercio Popular in Little Village. Could you start off by introducing yourself as well as sharing your title with us?
3: Certainly. Uh, my name is Miguel Cervantes, and I am the founder of Comercio Popular.
0: What are the roots of the concept behind Comercio Popular in Latin America and in Mexico?
3: For sure. They are very personal, actually. So the project started in 2018. Um, I was born in Mexico, so but I've lived in Chicago since I was six years old. Uh, For me, it's a very personal project in many ways. Um, It was born out of curiosity to further explore sort of like my Mexicanness, which in Spanish you would say Mexicanidad, which is kind of like a term that came from the author um, Octavio Paz and it was his his attempt to explain what Mexican means and the good things and the challenging things of, of me and Mexican so I kind of related to that having lived in the U.S. for so long yeah and then there's layers of me being immigrant being queer being a designer and just how that related to to things that were or are made in Mexico just just having that design curiosity because i've seen design global design as as some people describe it come from you know japan and uh the Nordic regions and countries and and even American design. But we rarely hear about Mexican design. At least I didn't at the time. And once I discovered that such a thing existed, it was a very personal sort of objective of mine to share it with other people. And, And that's really kind of where it all started.
0: Could you talk a little bit about your Mexican identity and adapting to America as well as adapting to Chicago street fashion?
3: For sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I always think I have a very unique story, but it's actually not that unique. Uh, Probably a lot of people could relate. You know, I again, I was born in Mexico. I came here when I was six years old with my family. Um, So I didn't speak the language meaning English. Um, and so so it was challenging. I And we landed in Pilsen. it's where I grew up. It was a very different Pilsen from, from what it is today. Um, so in a way, it was very insulated. Um, I didn't know much outside of Pilsen. And everything that sort of like I took in came from the neighborhood, from the community, because that's all I knew. However, I was very fortunate to have a young father, young meaning he was like in his early twenties, when when, uh, when he was, uh, we were all in Pilsen, um, and he was also very sort of like curious and and arty and sought to kind of like explore culture in ways that um, that perhaps other people didn't. And that brought me a lot of exposure that that I wouldn't have had otherwise A sort of like influenced both by my family, but also by, by the community. At that time, to me, Chicago was Pilsen and nothing more. Um, and then it wasn't until I went to high school. I, I was in high school at Woodney Young um, High School. And that opened a whole other world of uh, of what it meant to be a Chicagoan and what it meant to to have an identity that most often is expressed through fashion. Um, you know, like like many teenagers at the time, you're you're trying to kind of like make your voice heard, not necessarily like literally, sometimes visually. Uh, and to me, it was just fascinating to see many cultures and many youth express their way and and I wanted to be part of that. So so I think that's that's a little bit of how I started discovering what it meant to to present yourself through your clothing, a little bit inspired by your culture perhaps or by the culture that was happening around you and and most often it was through through street culture.
0: What is the idea behind your comercio popular?
3: Yeah, so so it's uh comercio popular is, is really a concept that uh again it goes back to me uncovering or helping myself uncover uh, contemporary design in Mexico. I think when people often think of, of Mexican design or, or art, we, we often go back to, to the traditional and to the crafty and to, and to sort of like muralism or whatnot. Um, and oftentimes we forget that, that there's a lot of creatives out there um, who are just as contemporary, just as modern, Um, but that are still kind of like rooted in heritage and tradition and and trying to bring that into what they create. And to me, that's really exciting. I I get really excited by that, partly because, again, it's not something that I was exposed to recently and and it felt like something new to me. So I wanted to share that with other people. Um, And one way of doing it was by inviting those designers to be part of the project, like Uh, selling me their design so then I could sell it back here in Chicago but it's really become much more than just selling or showcasing design Um, the concept has become very community oriented because I've also realized my responsibility to uh, to create spaces uh, for myself and for others where they can experience this um, and where they can kind of like create a dialogue or, or a conversation um, and make those connections. Um, I think a lot of people who are interested in the project can find the connection, whether it's through their parents, through their culture, through their heritage or something like that, um, where they see those little elements of the design kind of like reflected back uh, through, through the objects or the clothing even. So. Yeah, that's that's the idea. It's become much more of a cultural project, as much as a, as a retail concept.
0: Can you mention some of your favorite designers and how they are distinct from each other, as well as how it may inspire your
3: store? For sure. Uh, I mean, most of them most of them have turned out to be the the, the brands that we carry. You know, we have uh, brands from all over the country, and and that's part of our objective. So we have because Mexico City is kind of like the center uh of like city life there are a lot of creatives there so brands like jpeg alista clothing polo and Storch; those are those are some of the ones that uh we carry but aside from that i I think what uh what inspired this is also seeing other crafts and goods around the world and how they relate to to mexican design so for me uh, you know, as much as like a fashion, French fashion designers and American fashion designers are, are super cool uh, and, I, and I get inspired by them. I like a little bit more of the sort of like traditional, um, more local designers as well. So, or, or like a more cultural design, I guess you could, you can also say it. Uh, so I get inspired by like Nordic design, by Japanese design, by um, you know, by by certain design that may not be considered design. It's more of a, a lifestyle that's that's a little bit more like rooted in natural materials or natural resources and things like that.
0: Could you tell me why it was important for you to pick this location in particular here in Little Village?
3: Partly because I, I connect with it. So we we did have a shop in Pilsen before, a pop up, um, and then because of the pandemic, we had to close that down um and and because it was a pop-up it was a way of us trying to see how the community would respond to it um you know who would come through or whatnot and then uh a year or 18 months later as we were looking to reopen and and kind of like bring back the the space because the the the, uh the idea has continued through virtual or digital sort of offerings uh, like instagram but um when we wanted to bring back the space in real life, um, Pilsen had changed even more um, and we felt uh, compelled to, to bring it to a space or to a neighborhood um, where we felt comfortable but also that where we felt that there was also a thriving scene of artists and creatives already uh, that perhaps are not as known similar to us, right? So. so for us it just made sense and um, one thing that changed about the concept is I met um, uh, one of my business partners but also one of my has turned into my my best friend, um, and her name is Lucia and Lucia was born and raised in Little Village and she wanted to open a flower shop. So when I told her that we were looking at spaces in in Little Village uh for her it also just made sense. It's like she she wanted to be back in her community, bring an offering that that was perhaps a different point of view as well, uh and just reconnect with the people. You know, I think I think one of the things that's really important to us is that anybody that walks through the door can identify um, with us and that we're able to greet them and tell them stories. Uh, and not just about Mexico or, or the design, but also about um, us growing up in Chicago and, and in the neighborhoods. So uh, yeah, th- th- those were some of the factors for us that, that kind of like convinced us, but also kind of uh, encouraged us to, to be in Little Village.
0: Could you share with us any possible struggles that you may have encountered while changing locations through a pandemic?
3: You know, we've been very fortunate where the people that uh, follow us or the people that encourage us or they want to collaborate with us are are very respectful uh, and very sort of like, uh, they're cheerleaders for us as well. So so the transition has felt, uh, at least for me, more, more, uh, "Quote unquote, normal than anticipated. People are excited to see us again in a space. Like people who who used to be who used to come to the Pilsen location, are coming to the Little Village location as well, and and they're excited that that we're back in a space where we can kind of like offer um, a sense of community and, and a sense." Uh, or an opportunity for connecting. Um, so, so that's felt really, really good. The, the transition has been, it's felt natural and organic and, and it's given us other ideas of what we may wanna do with the space uh, and, and opportunities that we may have by being there.
0: Who is your target audience? Are you trying to help younger Latinx embrace their culture? You know, looking at your page, I see younger models and trendy items like tote bags, funky earrings and fun colorful ponchos
3: yeah no our, our audience ranges uh we we don't necessarily have that's a great question uh and we we don't necessarily have a specific target audience um we we want to kind of like make everything accessible you know when, when we started um our, our sort of like slogan model motto was hecho para todos uh, which was inspired by echo in mexico um, hecho para todos, meaning you should be able to walk into a space, and, and this is again where it becomes personal, you should be able to walk into a space and, and, and feel comfortable, but also you should be able to walk out of a space, and especially of a retail space, and be able to afford something if you want to, right? Uh, I think our, our our sort of like generations and, and our communities um, are able to 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 afford higher price items, as well right now right and they want to spend money with, with other latinx businesses but then there are also uh sort of like generations that are up and coming and perhaps are not able to afford as much so you want to have a range of, of products and items that are very exciting and, and that you can walk you know, walk out with a, you know, a small item that makes you feel good and you connect to that that's probably not super pricey, but something that perhaps is a little bit feels even more special or handcrafted or whatnot. Um so so it's not necessarily about uh you know targeting a specific audience. It's more about identifying with a specific audience as well. You know, I think what we're hoping for is whether it's the models or the products, again, that you can connect with them in some way. Uh, we we often have items where uh, people will walk in. It's like, oh yeah, I remember something like that used to be like in my abuelita's kitchen or I used to drink out of cups like that. Uh, but so so there's a, a familiarity to things um, and similar with with some of the, the clothing items and the fashion items that we have, right? Like people, uh, some of the most popular items, I can give you an example. One of the most popular is like these really, like colorful, vibrant ponchos uh, that people walk in. And and we all know that like serapes and ponchos are kind of like, you know, considered traditionally Mexican, but you see them in more sort of like geometric patterns or whatnot, culturally. Uh, and the ones that we carry have these like crazy graphics and uh, very, very sort of like different than what people have seen. So the, the shape and the form of the poncho is still there, what people can identify with Mexico. But then the, the sort of like the colors and the, the fabrics and, and the way you wear it might not be super traditional, right? Yeah. So, so a little bit of everything for everyone.
0: Can you tell me who and what is essential for inspiration when it comes to your store?
3: Yeah, um I think uh, that's that's what's kind of really fun and exciting about this project for me is that the people that I work with um or that I connect with are are all essential to the project, right? As much as my my friends and business partners as the people who who come into the space. Uh creatively, um I don't think this would be able to happen without me actually being in Mexico making those connections with um with the designers and the makers and the creatives uh who who make the things right uh they're they're sort of like essential to to the narrative and and to what we present so without building those relationships and and that's one thing that's um in terms of the process that's one thing that's very important for me it's getting to know the designers and and who we're, we're purchasing from um but also them getting to know who we are. Um, You know, a lot of a lot of designers um, and it's changing. And then that's one of our objectives, always see um new york or la as the places to kind of like try to sell and try to visit or whatnot so so one of my objectives was like hey we have a really really cool latinx crowd in chicago uh that would love your designs and and this is why you why you should you know be present in this market or in this city um yeah we just had a market last week for example where where another part of the process is also inviting some of the designers to come up here um, so they can kind of see Chicago, experience it, and hopefully go back and, and tell other people about it. Um, so that's part of the process. It's building those relationships and making those connections. Um, so our audience keeps growing, so our, our sort of offerings keep growing and the designers themselves kind of like discover or or, or not necessarily discover, but like are made aware that, that Chicago is, is, is a cool place.
0: Do you think you can tell me a little bit about your background and how it has led up to this point?
3: For sure. Um, again, raised in Pilsen, uh, then went to high school in in at Whitney Young, um, where I was exposed to other youth from all over the city, which just kind of like made me even more excited about where I lived. Um, and then from then, I worked after college, I worked... Um, in a non-profit, um, sort of like uh, doing um, social and academic enrichment for, for youth, um, under-resourced youth. And, and the idea there was to kind of expose the youth to to other opportunities, high school opportunities, college opportunities, and things like that. So that really uh, helped me get to know the city and then fall in love more with the city. And then, but during that time, I had also sort of like always had a curiosity for design i didn't have a design background uh like many many immigrant kids you know we're we're sort of like at least in my time it was like we were made to believe it's like you go to you go to school you go to college and then you get uh a job at a bank or you know or become a lawyer or something like that or a teacher you know uh which are all fantastic jobs um but then once i discovered that they had that <clears throat> I had this curiosity for for design in a way. I went back to school um, and got a master's in design, and yeah, from there, like just working with different corporations and, and doing research and things like that, led me to kind of wanna start my own thing. Um, and yeah, and and that's that's where it's from. So I'm still I'm still a uh, consultant for a design agency, and uh, that's my full-time job. And then my passion project is Comercio Popular, which is, uh, is is a full-time passion project.
0: Do you think you can chime in on what you think about fast fashion brands trying to cash in on cultural clothing and items? Speaking of terms of culture appropriation,
3: yeah, um, it's it's almost inevitable. You know, I mean, they are big uh, monsters, for for lack of a better word. You can fight them. You can try to fight them. Uh, and, and I'm not saying not to fight them, but I'm also thinking of, like, because I've seen what Mexican brands can do. It's like, or you can create your own things, right? And, and you can make those things happen and, and, and also kind of, like, show it to the world. How can we educate or expose the world that this is this is a better value for you or a better investment? Uh, than shopping at a at a fast uh, fast fashion place, but having said that, there is there is room for it because not everybody can afford, you know, like uh, higher priced items or more expensive items, and and certain people want that still, right? And whether they do it correctly or not, that depends on your point of view. But hopefully, projects like ours. Um, are bringing an alternative and, and showing you that, that you don't always have to buy, buy fac, uh, fast fashion and things like that.
0: Could you talk about the importance of supporting small businesses who are incorporating their culture into their line of work?
3: I, I think it's for me it's it's really exciting because that's what excites me about the the pro the, the, the items and the things that we bring. It's people so I'll give you an example it's like people, making uh clay pottery you know that that we usually think is like very traditionally mexican or colorful or whatnot and then and then you have a designer who's like sure we can make it the same way but what if we made it this different shape like we, what if we kind of like made it a little bit you know, weirder or less colorful or whatnot, and it's like, and, and it looks just as beautiful and it feels just as beautiful as as the traditional things. Uh, so to me, that's that's really fascinating when when people think like that. Um, so for people to to be inspired by the by their culture and kind of like give it a new spin is I I love it. I mean, just to give you an example, we are launching an event uh, or a brand. Helping a brand launch uh, themselves um, in Little Village. It's uh, it's a couple who grew up in Little Village and they want to get into the coffee business, uh, but they don't want to do it like everybody else. So what they're doing is they are only selling uh, coffee coffee from Mexico, from the state of Chiapas, and it's a collect. Uh, they work with a collective of women out there, coffee growers. Uh, which is one of the few in Mexico. Uh, yeah, but they are making it their own by making drinks that you wouldn't expect. So they're making like a spicy horchata or like a cafe de olla with like different tamarind flavors or something like that, you know? So so it's. I think it's wonderful when you can take a little bit of your culture give it a spin and kind of make it your own uh so so I, I i highly support that is what i'm trying to say
0: lastly could you talk to me about some of your all-time favorite pieces in your store and why they're your favorite how do they add to your own personal style
3: yeah for sure um one that comes to mind is these uh this clay pottery that we have which is very traditional and it's from uh the pie pie community in, Uh, Tijuana in Baja California and it's one of my favorite I mean they're they're all my favorite pieces but this one kind of stands out because people usually when they think about pottery they might think like Oaxaca or or other states that are you know kind of like known for their crafts so for me it's it's really fascinating and important to to find um, a piece like this but also the the Pai Pai is a community in um in baja california that that's has like a dying language or a dying dialect some people would say um and this artisan is trying to help sustain and maintain that language by creating pottery and then taking some of those profits uh to educating other people about uh about the language and, and their culture um so so it's 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 a piece that represents many things uh, along with like artistry and design. It also represents like community and culture and language in in many ways. So, yeah, so I I would say that's that's probably one of my favorite uh, or one piece that, that that stands out for me a lot.
0: Aside from this Sunday event, do you guys have any other future events that you're planning that you would like to share with us?
3: we do uh we have a christmas what we're calling a a christmas market in december for the holidays where we'll be showcasing design pieces that are all vintage uh so we've we've gone through to mexico city and guadalajara and found like little vintage pieces uh that are rooted in mexican design so uh that'll be really special those those are like pieces that that you can't find very frequently and and that are rooted in mexican design so uh yeah uh, that'll be uh probably the third week in December um but we'll we'll continue like programming so so through our Instagram page uh you'll see all the events that are happening there including the the coffee this this Sunday
0: by any chance could you tell us where our audience can find you at
3: for sure we're at 2901 West Cermak Road um mm-hmm. which is at the intersection of CERMAC and Marshall if you are from Little Village or you are from the area, you will recognize the Apollo's 2000 sign. Uh, and we're like half a block across the street from there, basically.
0: Well, thank you so much, Miguel, for speaking with me today. Moving on with our show, we have two more interviews to come, but we're going to take a quick music break and be back with more content. Don't forget that you're listening to 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, WLPN, LP Chicago. And this is What's Up? Humans of the Fashion Industry.
4: Looking good, I'm feeling fine. Looking good, I'm feeling fine. Fight.
1: What's up, it's August, you're listening to What's Up on WLPN-LP, Lumpet Radio, 105.5 FM, Chicago. I'm here today with Jamie Hayes, owner of Production Mode, a Chicago-based fashion company focusing on creating ethically made clothing. She's a designer, she's a DJ, she's an all-around amazing person. So thank you for being with us today and uh, Let me just kick it off with the first question. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work?
5: Sure thing, August. Um, Thanks for that introduction. So I'm Jamie Hayes. I am the designer and founder of Production Mode um, based here in Chicago in the Pilsen neighborhood now. (laughs) I've been doing Production Mode since 2015, but I've been a designer for a lot longer. So I started out, I moved here to Chicago from St. Louis to study fashion and I studied at Columbia College. And even while I was still in school, I got very lucky and I got a job working for another designer called 1154 Lil Studio, which was a pioneer in the area of mass customization. So there were different handbag silhouettes, and then a whole bunch of different fabric swatches in the store and the client could come in and pick out which swatches, which fabrics they want on which part of the bag. So it was really cool because this was the early 2000s and um, you know, no, not many people were doing mass customization. Like even Nike wasn't doing it yet, like where you could customize the different components of your sneakers. And we even developed uh, like 3D visualization and online visualization of what you were doing. So, and the fun thing as a designer, especially of my generation, like post NAFTA and post Pacific Rim agreements is that because it was customized, we had this like three week turnaround time. So we couldn't really manufacture much outside of Chicago. So at first we did everything in house and then we worked with contractors in the Chicago area. So I got a ton of production experience which is partly why I called my company production mode. And also uh, it kind of radicalized me because I saw how different contractors operated and there were some good ones, but there were also some really bad ones. So, you know, we have sweatshops right here in the US, right here in Chicago. And also I became friends with a lot of the stitchers and I heard their stories and the stories were all so similar. The company that I worked for was great, treated workers very well. So I saw that a different way was possible. And that really inspired me. And, you know, I started working in um, activism and social justice movements um, after I left that job. So production mode is also kind of talking about the means of production, the modes of production, kind of a neo-Marxist point of view, which uh, may be a strange marketing and business standpoint, but really trying to do something in this system that we live in here in the US.
1: I really love the double meaning in the name. Um, I wanted to know, from the time you started working in the fashion industry, has the amount of sweatshops increased or decreased? What's changed there?
5: Gosh, that's a hard question to answer because I didn't do like a whole, you know, sociological survey. And there really isn't a very big fashion industry here in Chicago, especially for cut and sew contractors. So even um, whether you're trying to manufacture ethically or just at all, sometimes uh, designers have to leave Chicago in order to get their brands produced. So they'll work with contractors in New York or LA kind of depending on what skill sets they're looking for or you know go all the way overseas. Um, the fashion industry has changed a lot since the early 2000s but really the the trends that you see now were already kind of in their inception. So a couple of things you know like things had really been, starting to be offshore and that you know increased even more. so that's also why you see um, less of a locally made fashion scene anywhere in the US. I think the good news is that we've already like bottomed out and we're starting to, to come back up and see kind of more options um, for different service providers in the fashion industry. So sometimes what we struggle with is just finding anybody to work with at all, whether it's cutters or sewers or uh, the people who uh, make the patterns or grade the patterns. And again, I do a lot of that in-house. That's been sort of my solution to the issue is just try to control everything. But also everything has changed on the sales and marketing end. You know, um, like most industries, super direct, fashion was super disrupted by the internet, and and some of that is good for small providers in that you can work and sell direct to customer. You don't need the trade show circuit anymore. You can speak to your customer directly via social media. But the hard thing is, is of course, um, you know, small brands don't have budgets for. People who do SEO, uh, we may not be the most savvy with like all the changes that happen with social media constantly, right? Um, And we have to do everything ourselves. And of course, at this point, you know that if someone's doing a Google search for like leather jacket, my company is not gonna come up on the first 20 pages, (laughs) right? So um, it's similar to like what's happening in the music scene that if you're an independent artist, you may have tons of talent, you may have lots of drives. You may have something really special, but cutting through all the noise and getting people to see that is um, is a challenge. But it's always been that way, whether you know we were working in the traditional systems 30, 40 years ago, or you know, these newer systems that have happened in the past um, 20 years. I will say with regard to sweatshops in particular, at least there's recognition of them now. Um, You know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when I was first thinking about this, like people thought I was really weird because I would ask questions like of our suppliers, like, hey, what are the working conditions in this factory in China that we might end up working with? And like they would just show me like actual printouts of photos of the factory and like how clean and nice it was. (laughs) And I was like, well, I have no idea if that's true or not. You know, who took the snapshots? Are these the actual factory? Did the did everybody clean everything up just on the day that they knew that you were going to come? So again, that's sort of what galvanized me to try to work uh, locally and as much in house as as possible, so that I would just develop relationships with people and and be able to to verify them myself, and not just cross my fingers and like hope everything was was good.
1: So this concept of being involved in every step of the production, uh, as I've learned from your website, that's called slow fashion. Uh, And you've talked a bit about how it's made it more difficult for companies, especially independent companies, uh, harder to get up in the industry. Could you elaborate a little on the benefits of having this model?
5: Oh, my gosh, there's so many benefits. I mean, one is like you can sleep at night and not feel like you're a gross person, you know, I mean, it is really the baseline. I'm not trying to say that, uh, if you don't actively exploit people, you deserve an award or something like sadly, that is kind of where we're at in a capitalist system, but, um, you know, still just knowing that you're trying to be part of a change, um, and, um, creating a dialogue is just the baseline, right. For like mental health in this world, in my opinion. Um, But also like you develop these great relationships with the people that you work with and the scene is very collaborative. So, you know, you hear all these stories about how competitive fashion is and cutthroat and you know, how shrewd and rude people are in the industry. And honestly, that hasn't been my experience at least not working in Chicago, Um, you know, working with other fashion designers here um, we share our clientele. Our clients are super supportive of us, and they, you know, tell their friends who they think might like us. It's not just like, oh, she's my special designer, and I don't want you to know the secret, you know. So I think that there's this spirit of community and collaboration, and that extends beyond just the fashion industry. Uh, because Chicago is a smaller market for fashion, um, I end up collaborating with like screen printers, fine artists, weavers. Textile mills and uh, musicians—you know everything that I'm passionate about. Um, activists, so I, I think that that is harder to do in a in a larger city. And if you're working in a more um, traditional model or like you're a bigger company, I mean, of course, you see like H and M doing their conscious collections and what have you. But you know, you if you're a really kind of digging deeper, you you think about like, well, how You know, how sustainable is that if they're pumping out 26 collections a year? How feminist is this t-shirt if, you know, it's being made in a sweatshop? You know, Uh, if a big company is making a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter, but they're exploiting workers throughout the world, do they really understand, you know, social justice? So I think working more slowly and intentionally allows you to, like, dig into these questions. I don't want to say that we're perfect or we don't have room to grow or learn but at least there's the the space to, to do so and to question things.
1: So you mentioned you collaborate with a lot of artists of different mediums. Do you view your work with production mode as more uh, an art or clothing?
5: That's a great question, kind of a provocative one, because I think that there tends to be a hierarchy in the art world where art or fine art is perceived as more important than craft, um, or kind of the manual arts, uh, or design even. And for me, there isn't a hierarchy. And I think that's starting to shift in the art world as well. Um, and I think that that you know the creative sensibility that that makes us humans can be present in anything that you do. It doesn't have to be something that would be hung in a museum and hung on the main floors, you know? If you go to a museum, you will see textiles, you will see um, some clothing, but it's usually like in the basement, you know? And I think part of that is also that fashion has um, been seen as uh, primarily something that, uh, you know, it's very feminine or effeminate. And that's not true, we all wear clothes, of course, and luckily now, two boundaries of gender are really being questioned, boundaries of sexuality are being questioned, and we're kind of moving away from this this binary, right? But um, all that said, I try not to stick in those strict distinctions, but I'm also very happy when people call me a designer or talk about my craft I don't need to be labeled as an artist to feel like what I do is relevant. That said, I love art. I love the art world. I love creative people. That's what, what drives me. So, um, and another challenge as an independent designer is accessing like really cool textiles. Um, you, if you go to a fabric show as a small designer, lots of the mills won't even you know give you the time of day because they want orders like 10,000 yards. That might be their minimum, and certainly if you want to develop a collection with most mills, it's it's pretty hard to do so unless you're going to place a giant order. So if you work with fellow artists and artisans, you know, and people who have similar business models to you, then you can, um, you know, make something that's better than the sum of its parts, but also be able to access some uh, proprietary materials, truly creative. Um, Materials to work with, and my company is very materials driven. I am very materials driven as a designer, so that inspires me. Like, if I have a really cool textile, then my brain will start going and I'll think of a hopefully equally interesting silhouette um, to cut that textile and sew it into. So, I work with people like the Weaving Mill, um, and, and they're really interesting in, in the terms of how they bridge the art and design practice. They're based in Humboldt Park inside of Envision, um, which is a Uh, a facility uh, for uh, adults with developmental disabilities and they work with the clients there to produce materials, run workshops. It's like a super fun place where everybody there is just like making art and dancing and socializing and it's like so fun just to visit and be in that environment. Um, I've worked with Studio Heron, which is um, a textile studio um, above, they're based above my studio now in Contemporary. Um, Leslie Baum, who's a fine arts painter who hand painted some silk um, tops for me. And she has a show coming up at the Cultural Center. And we're in the midst of another collaboration that I've been dragging my feet on. I gotta <laughs> speed that one up on my end. Um, I've worked with Paula Wilson, who's an incredible artist um, and printmaker. So she's done some prints for me. Um, I do a lot of collaborations with Damon Locks um, of Black Monument Ensemble and making costumes for performance for that group. Um, I've also worked with a a dancer named uh, and choreographer Martine Whitehead. Um, She she and Damon also did music and dance for the show that I produced at Hyde Park Art Center, but also I've just done pieces for Martine's own work it's like fun to be a tiny part of that her work is really great same with Damon
1: so when you hold your exhibition of everything you made for a collection uh you you have like a performance
5: that's what I did in 2017 um and that was super satisfying uh it's a I had a, a grant from dcase and that helped but it's a difficult way to work because you kind of have to hold everything back while you develop it you know and I'm a team of me and two other people who are not full-time, you know, so there's not a lot of like people hours (laughs) to complete things. And then also I've learned that my clients, you know, they don't want to wait a year or two or however long it takes me to make a collection to get new things. And I can't wait that long to sell them to them. So I'm thinking of kind of flipping things on their head and putting all the things out and then maybe showcasing them in a, in some sort of collection or runway show, but I never, when I have the chance to be in you know, creative control, I don't usually want to do a runway show because it's just kind of like, it's been done so much. And also to do it well, you really need a ton of money. So I've always tried to you know, subvert things and make people think in different ways. And so when I did that uh, show in 2017, I had Martine Whitehead choreograph it, she danced as well, and then um, brought in some other dancers and as did I, so some professional folks and non-professional folks. And the cool thing was that we had people of all different ages and body types, so not your typical runway model. And again, luckily the fashion industry is starting to do that as well, but you know, it was still viewed as you know, this very different way of showing work back then. And uh, people seem to really like it. I remember people coming up to me and saying like, well, now I can envision myself in these pieces because I'm seeing them on someone who has a body type that's more similar to mine. So that was really cool instead of being like, oh, I need to see this on someone who's six foot two and four inch heels. Like, no, I wanted to see it on a real body. And then also, of course, Martine's movement is really beautiful and very different than the kind of like stomping runway walk, which that's cool, but like seeing the garments in motion from every angle um, and kind of this real poetic um, form of movement was, was really powerful.
1: Speaking to the design aspect of this job, what's, what's your personal process like for creating a collection of clothing?
5: Well, ideally you start with some kind of mood board and some people have a real clear clear idea from from the get-go in terms of like words or images or concepts, but I know for me, like I kind of have to make that board and then from there be like, what am I even trying to get at, you know? So it'll be like a series of ideas that have been interesting me or moods. For me, like I get less and less specific, it seems, the, the more I work, but in the end, there is a specificity that, that comes out of it. There is a through line, but sometimes I can't see it until I'm pretty far into the collection. So the one I did in 2017, I mean, it was very much based on the textiles that were developed um, in collaboration um, with, uh, also I need to mention her work as well, uh, Nuria Montiel, who's based in Mexico City who is also um, a printmaker but has a a very interesting like social practice aspect to her artwork. Um, She had this project called La Emprenta Mobile in Mexico City and around Mexico where she had like a push cart, a mobile printing press and allowed people to like make their own posters, um, sometimes in in conjunction with um, labor and protest movements, social justice movements, but sometimes people were just expressing whatever was inside of them. And um, so when she was studying here in Chicago at School of the Art Institute, um, we became friends and I started collaborating with her. So the textiles from that collection, the Move Repeat collection were developed with her and the weaving mill. Um, So the textiles really came first. And then out of that, it's just kind of interesting because I think fashion designers tend to be kind of prescient. Like um, our job is to sort of figure out what people are going to be thinking and feeling. And six months to a year to a couple of years ahead. And so I think it tends to attract people who are kind of in tune with the, the zeitgeist or the collective unconscious or what have you, you know? And uh, I started making all these silhouettes that were like bigger and like cocooning and uh, wrapping. And if you think about like uh, that time period, you know, it's like right when, um, Trump was coming into power. I was developing the collection like before he was elected, actually, you know. And, uh, you know, it was a scary time. We're still in that, I think, scary time period. But, you know, 2015, like less overtly scary, you know. And yet, I was having this sensation of, like, okay, I need to protect myself. I need to rap. I need to stay safe, you know. And I also need to be a little bit of a warrior, like a little bit tough, you know. so it's interesting then uh, when that collection then came out, it seemed like a response to all of that, but it was really happening kind of before, beforehand. So I think we're tending to like tune in to ourselves and to what's going on in our environments and around us, historically, politically, socially, and then try to create something that you're gonna wanna wear in whatever environment we're gonna be in. So it's a little bit of a weird process and, and, and job, but, um, There is like a psychological um, aspect to it
1: on your website you make it very clear that production mode prioritizes paying workers a living wage how how is that possible
5: you mean like how do i stay profitable or in the black and be able to do that yeah well i would say you know the profit margin is slim i wish it were were higher but uh, every year, um, we're able to hire more people or at least give them more hours. Uh, not during the pandemic, we just held steady, but we didn't cut any hours. Um, and honestly, I think it's partly because uh, there's a lot of sweat equity from from my end. You know, I make sure everybody gets paid before I pay myself. My salary at this point is not huge. Um, I augment it with other work, but we've always been profitable. So I. Part of the, the company was uh, an experiment to try to show that another way is possible. You know, when you don't have shareholders to answer to, you, you can distribute more of the wealth that's created by your business directly to the people who are making it possible. You know, you can't have a fashion business without somebody cutting and sewing, you know? So they should be the ones who are uh, rewarded for, for that work. And you know, of course, I want to make a living wage as well for what I do. Um, but I think as an owner, you have a responsibility of, of making sure that the people that you hire and you contract um, are are treated with some modicum of fairness. Like that just seems obvious to me. And even if you do have shareholders, I feel like they should only be able to get that that gravy that's left over after you pay a living wage. You know. Um, It would be easier if I produced overseas because I'd have a bigger, you know, profit margin. And there are some, you know, there's a fair trade movement where you can work in this model and still make sure that folks overseas are are getting paid in a, in a fair manner. But I wanted, I really like the process of cutting and sewing and um, having all that close to me and being able to be really nimble and change designs or customize them for people's specific body type. So I want more control and immediacy of the process. And honestly, that's how things used to be. And I think you saw better designs and better quality work as a result. And it was only to save money that people started offshoring. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a ton of talent overseas. In fact, more so than is here in the US at this point, because we've offshored so much that we've kind of lost a lot of that knowledge. and talent and machinery. Um, but when you do things far away from where you are, you, it's hard to keep those relationships up. Um, and it's hard to, if something goes wrong in production, it's too late once it arrives to you on a boat six months later, you know? You're not gonna send it back. So you're just gonna put it out there. And I've heard many stories about that from friends who've worked in the industry about how you know, quality went down after things were offshored. Uh, because there's just, there's less quality control, you
1: know? Okay, this is the last question. Um, So I'm not very familiar with the fashion industry, but uh, I am quite intrigued in DJ culture and and that industry. Uh, And I've noticed a lot of people um, are involved with both, uh, like you. Uh, I wanted to know why, why do you think um, they cross over so much?
5: That's a great question and I have, I have thought about that and I think um, maybe it's because like DJs and fashion designers are both like tend to be tastemakers um, so we're thinking about like what's interesting, what's the next thing what's going to move people? What are people excited about? We're we're usually like a little bit ahead of of that curve, but also I think that um, fashion is often uh, very similar to like making a collage and um, so is DJing, you know, you're taking um, like similar to taking materials or cloths and, and figuring out how to tell a story through textiles Um, you know, you're taking existing music and you're creating this like art and and you're creating textures, you're creating vibes, feelings, and you're, you're also like working in that same way. I was talking about earlier where you're working on people's psychology, like trying to create a mood or control a room, like a really great DJ can make everybody want to get up and move. They can make everybody cry, you know, they can make everybody freak out. I saw uh, DJs perform the other night at Penny Whistle, uh, Lovemaker and some friends. And like I was like, there's going to be a fight in here tonight. Like People are just wild and they're freaking out. And there wasn't because there was also a lot of love and energy in the room. But I could feel like they were just like letting the tension out, which is just what we all needed. Um, but you know, even though I didn't know a lot of the songs they were playing, I could feel what they were communicating, which was just like, yeah, let your tension out. Like, let's release this. So I think um, fashion can do a lot of the same things. I mean, it's different. Like, wouldn't see people freak out over a collection necessarily, you know, lose their minds. But uh, there's still um, a lot of subtle, Subliminal messages, like literally woven into what you're doing when you're a designer, and I, you know, you weave records together too. Um, and if you're talented technically, you can blend records and create uh, your own unique sound that's only going to happen in that moment, which is also really cool, kind of like a one-of-a-kind garment.
1: Any new events coming up this uh, this month, or well, what's up?
5: Uh, I have an event in Pilsen on November 13th and 14th um, at Anna Brown Studio, which is 1911 South Racine Street. And it's part of this really cool event called Constellation, which uh, five different shops in Pilsen are participating in it. And so uh, if you want to come, the first location you go to, you'll get a little map and there's a punch card. And if you visit all five locations, um, you'll be entered into a raffle for this amazing gift bag of work from the different shops and the designers who are participating. And all the shops are independently owned, locally owned, and off, most of them feature the work of local designers as well. So it's, it's going to be a really cool way if you're thinking about your holiday shopping to like support local, ethically made, artistic things. And um, I think most of your listeners know that like Pilson's just a really... Beautiful neighborhood, tons of stuff to do there. So like make a day of it while you're there, support the bars and restaurants, see the murals, enjoy the people hanging out on the street, all of that. So that's my that's my news.
1: Again, thank you so much for your time, Jamie. If you're interested in learning more about Production Mode, check them out on the website, productionmodechicago.com or on IG at Production mode. This is a What's Up on WLPN-LP, Lumpin' Radio, 105.5 FM, Chicago. Um, August, uh, I'm August. I'm going to pass this off to the ads. <laughs> and we'll be right back. Stick around.
2: Hello everybody, you're listening to 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio, WLPN LP Chicago, and this is What's Up, bringing you humans of the fashion industry. Yay, Our next very special guest is a fashion designer unlike any other, mind-blowing garments and colors galore, Okay. Today, virtually, we have none other than Sky Kobaku, the creator of Rebirth Garments, a clothing line for queer and trans disabled folks of all sizes and ages that they started in Chicago back in 2014. Hi Sky, thank you so much for being here with us today and for accepting our invitation to be a part of our radio show.
6: Thank you. (laughs) Oh my God. Hello.
2: (laughs) And so getting a little bit into your story in the fashion industry, what was your story starting with fashion?
6: Both of my parents were an art artist, so my mom was a professional dancer and she's a painter and multimedia artist. She was a doll maker. Now she is a CPS teacher at Harriet Tubman Elementary doing dance drama. And then my dad was a painter, poet, musician, video artist, like performance artist, lots of things. He passed away a couple of years ago, but growing up with both of these very highly obsessive artists who were very dedicated to their work. I had a lot of art exposed to me at a young age, and I was able to always have any of my interests as far as art goes. I was able to get supplies and really work on it because that's what my parents cared about. I really think my art is a really good mix of both of my parents' styles. Like the color and geometry is from like my father's paintings, but then the dance portion that I use for my fashion performances is very much based off of my mom's love of dance. So yeah, I kind of fill in any of the mediums that my parents didn't already do, but then take their styles and push them further. I was really interested in beading when I was a small child, and I really like repetitive processes because I had a lot of anxiety and I had panic disorder. So I didn't have the language for this at the time, but now I know that I need to like stim and fidget in order to kind of release the energy that was in my body. And so I was interested in beading, but then I saw this amazing work that was all made out of chainmail at one of my mom's art shows. And I was like, I want to learn how to make chainmail because it's kind of like beading, but it's more, it's way more cool. And it felt so nice in my hands, like very fluid, but also very nice temperature wise and weight wise. So uh, I got really into making adornment through chainmail. And because I was making a ton of garments out of chainmail that didn't really cover up the parts of me that, like, I quote unquote supposed to cover up for, like, you know, high school or whatever. My high school teachers at Northside were like, okay, you can be, like, naked in your performances or whatever in college, but for high school, you need to come up with something to go underneath. So they had me start making things to go underneath. Then I got really into sewing spandex because of that. And that's kind of like what led me to making a whole spandex collection in line.
2: That's so beautiful to hear. Like, what do you think seeing how fashion, whether it's professional like fashion garments or even just streetwear has has evolved through the years. Often, like right now, what's in fashion and what's in style is like a bunch of things that have been in the past and like are reoccurring or back in style. What do you think, just seeing fashion evolution in general?
6: I guess I'm always really disappointed in fashion evolution, like because it's always like 20 years behind, like as far as where it should be, like with accessibility and gender and things like that or yeah sometimes it's even more in the past. I mean fashion is cyclical so yeah there's always uh showing you know like right now early 2000s and 90s clothing is like popular again uh and that's like kind of what always happens but like the 60s had a lot of things inspired by the 20s and then the 90s had a lot of things inspired by the 60s which is also inspired by the 20s so I used to say when I was a child that I thought I was born in the wrong time because I really liked old movies and vintage fashion. But now I think that I was born in the correct time because, you know, we have all these examples of past fashion that we can draw from. But I definitely think in any other time in history, I would probably be locked away and not be able to do anything that I actually want to do because of gender things and racism and queerness and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that fashion is extremely backwards and behind in everything and largely became very disappointed very fast, which is why I started my own clothing line because I didn't have anything that I was satisfied with. Although I think that there are small designers that are doing interesting things us small designers have a lot more impact on what's good in fashion rather than big designers who are just keeping with the status quo forever
2: (laughs) for sure I definitely agree it's like this domino effect that you you see like from the smallest little trend or feature or, or anything that you know grows to the bigger scale. And you did start to mention a little bit your reasoning for uh, starting, you know, I feel like there was something that was missing in fashion that you saw just like was so behind. And if nobody else was going to do it, who was? So could we get into kind of what it is that started your fashion business and what that process was like starting that up?
6: Yeah, I guess when I was in high school, so I just actually turned 30, but I look very young. But Uh, When I was at Northside College Prep here in Chicago, I was one of the co presidents of our Gay Straight Alliance, which is now called Queers and Allies. And I went to a conference for like the presidents of the cities, like Queers and Allies groups. And there was a presentation by, I think they were called like the Chicago Boy Toys and Girl Toys or something. But it was all these drag kings showing how they found their chests and applied facial hair and how they like had little packing underwear and packers and I was just like super excited about it and fascinated and just like obsessed with that but then when I tried to go home to figure out doing that stuff on my own I realized that most of the things that I would need I would have needed access to digital money, like being able to buy things online. Like I had no debit card or credit card or anything. But then when I was looking at all of the stuff like chest binders and packing underwear and packers, I thought that they were all like really ugly and really boring. And also like they look like Band-Aids. Yeah, they were either white, which all got like super dirty, super fast. Or black or like this weird beige that was supposed to be, that was marketed as skin tone or something, but it's like, it's only skin tone for some white people. And yeah, I just was like, these are so hideous. Like, even if it would feel exciting to wear it, like on the outside, like I wouldn't want to like look at them because I thought that they were just not cute. So later on when I was in college and I had my stomach disorder started where my stomach just like stopped being able to digest food properly. And because of that, my stomach really hurt a lot all the time and I stopped being able to wear uh, what I call hard pants or or jeans like non-stretch unforgiving clothing so I was like okay I think I need to start making my own clothing more and I wanted to make it soft and comfy Uh, and I've also always had like sensory sensitivities to seams so I was like thinking about that but then at the same time I was like I really want to make those chest binders that I was interested in but like cute ones in like hot pink or colors that I like and I think that other people might be interested in it as well So, yeah, that's kind of how I started Rebirth Garments. Originally, I was like, maybe it'll be two different lines, like one that was lingerie for trans folks and one that was like adaptive clothing for disabled folks. But then I was like, well, I have both of these identities and more like maybe there would be other people who also have a bunch of different identities that they want to be celebrated at the same time. And yeah a lot of people responded very well to it so it's been great
2: so for those that may have never come across a rebirth garment which if you have you will never forget so could you (laughs) describe for our listeners what that might look like or what does one feel when wearing a rebirth garment
6: yeah so it's all spandex I use lots of neon pinks lots of turquoise and seafoam, purples, lavenders, neon yellows, neon greens, lots of black and white patterns like checkerboards and polka dots and like a dazzle camo, like kind of crosshatchy pattern. I have like a black and white triangles pattern that I use a lot. I also use a lot of holographic stuff, net, mesh, sheer mesh. I use some patterns that I get my my own designs printed onto fabric from a place called Spoonflower and also like chain mail. So I have on my head, which you might be able to hear in the microphone sometimes, is my headpiece that I wear every day. And it's like pink and purple, turquoise and yellow scales that stack on top of each other on my head. And it's just like looks like dragon scales or a bird or something. So, yeah, it's all very colorful and bright. Um, but that at the same time has like a lot of color blocking. I have pretty simple like silhouettes, but then I'll do a lot of color blocking. So it's like the different pieces of fabric that are cut into shapes and then sewn back together. Yeah, everything that I make for shows, it's like based off of interviews with the models. But if people order stuff from me, they can get it in whatever color they want. So you, you can find a rebirth garment that is just black if if that's what the customer wanted um, or the client wanted. So, but yeah, it's all very comfy and soft, but also like sturdy and strong. You can like flail your body all over the ground and it'll be fine.
2: (laughs) I love like what Rebirth Garments is doing with that. And I read a bit of your manifesto. Could you explain to the audience a little bit about the concept of radical visibility and how that's coming to fruition through your work?
6: So when I started the clothing line, there was a lot of people who responded very well to it. But also there were a lot of people who were confused by it, mostly People at my college, uh, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which I don't recommend, especially if you're a POC person or a queer person, it is a horrible place to be. (laughs) When I got there, I realized that there were like hardly anybody who talked about disability. But I think it's because it's like such an elitist, ableist place. And it's it kind of makes it almost impossible to go there if you have like any sort of disability. Uh, Whereas in my high school and grade school, there was a lot of disability prevalent. So it was like very normal to me in my life before. And then, yeah, I didn't realize that there were people who like just didn't understand disability whatsoever. (laughs) So like, yeah, when I was like, oh, I'm making clothing for queers with disabilities at SAC, the people that I talked to like couldn't even fathom That disabled folks could have a sexuality or even a gender, (laughs) because they just assumed that disabled people couldn't even have sex if they wanted to. Yeah, so I had all these people really confused about the clothing line just at my college. So I decided that I had to write this manifesto just to like explain my ideology behind the clothing line so that people could kind of get where I was coming from. So it, it talks about like my own identities since I have non-apparent disabilities, but also like talking about the reasoning behind my color palette and things like that. So it's called Radical Visibility, a Queer Crip Dress Reform Movement Manifesto. And it's like taking, it, it was an essay that I wrote in a class that I took from Romy Crawford that was like about women's writing. So I had to connect it to something in the class, so I was connecting it to suffragettes and, like, the rational dress reform movement of the 1800s of, like, needing to be able to have clothing that was comfortable, easy to put on, uh, allowed you full range of movement, was easy to clean And yeah, it wasn't like super heavy. So I took that concept and was like, we need to make our own dress reform movement as queer, trans and disabled folks uh, of all sizes that can be a riff off of that dress reform movement, like have the same kind of needs and concepts, but also have like kind of a fun, pataphysical element to it. Uh, So like pataphysics is kind of like metaphysics, only like ridiculous. So (laughs) yeah, I talk about having clear, sheer fabrics because we are clear about our identities. Like we know what we are and having like reflective materials so that it shows that we like reflect on, (laughs) we reflect about things. So like, just like kind of goofy concepts like that. Yeah. So that's what the... Manifesto is kind
2: of about. <laughs> I love it, and I love all that it speaks about. You know, the background and the deeper meaning of you know, just something as simple as like a fabric choice. It's so amazing, like the creativity that goes behind the garments that it is that you make and and are represented through rebirth garments. And so, I want to start this little conversation about creating this confidence and love for our bodies. I think that it's a definitely a conversation that you start with the garments that it is that you create and with. You know everything that it is that your brand represents. It's something that more and more youth nowadays, with you know the virtual world, with social media being at everybody's fingertips now at such a young age, and this idea of like perfect bodies, proportion, Mm -hmm. features on Instagram. Yeah. What do you think about that?
6: Yeah, I think it's very overwhelming, like that pressure, and that's why I just like I want to continue to perpetuate like joy and love and. Things like that, and not focus on things that are negative. (laughs) Even though, yeah, some things that are negative we need to be thinking about, but like I want my page to be like a space where it's like it can just be all about pure joy, just because having joy as a disabled person, as a POC person, as a queer person, as a trans person, as like anybody of marginalized identities is like a radical act. So I just like want to focus on that but yeah I think that the like weird face tune filters are definitely really damaging like I've seen it with one of my high school friends had a a sister who was born when we were 16 and just like the difference that of like stuff that she's experienced and yeah I think she was getting really into makeup a, a very Young age. And like, I think, I mean, I love playing with makeup and things like that. But she was like, I must contour my nose to be smaller. And we were like, oh no, (laughs) like, you are five. This is horrifying. (laughs) So, like, yeah, I think that that stuff is like kind of scary to me. I mean, it doesn't even need to be body positivity or anything. But like, I also am interested in the idea of body neutrality which is like sometimes easier for folks who are disabled or who have chronic pain or chronic illness, or like also folks who are survivors. Um, like I am like, sometimes it is really hard to be in your body because of the pain or the, the things that your brain are, that my brain is doing. So I also am pretty into this idea of body neutrality, like just being like, it's just a body. It's just what it is. It's neither good or bad, but it's definitely not bad. (laughs) I mean, I feel a lot of pressure as a person who's very visible online, like I will have scary people say terrible things to me, but luckily I've been able to cultivate my Instagram to have like a very nice following and everybody's like pretty caring, but like I can't even handle going on to TikTok because I had a video that accidentally got 5 million views and everybody was like. Saying awful things about my body. I mean, none of it I believe, and I think that they're all just like really super bigoted or just like had very disappointing sex education or body (laughs) education. But like, it it doesn't necessarily make me feel bad hearing those things, but just it makes me feel horrified for the world (laughs) if all of these people are saying these things that are just patently untrue (laughs) um, about bodies. And I'm like, oh no you don't understand how armpit hair works or things like that
2: (laughs) that's awful first like get off of tiktok all of y'all just adding negativity onto the platform and i'm also like in any arts i'm somebody who has this mindset of if it's not forward thinking if it's not like what you think the future looks like and if it's just like kind of keeping us in this present and this now that kind of is just continuing and m- perpetuating more of like the negativity the stigmas
6: yeah. the the
2: hate in the world and so i think that's what you're doing with your fashion and 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 i love that so much
6: yeah i think that there's like a quote somebody who is like oh societies that fail are the ones that can't imagine like a utopian future or something. So like, yeah, I'm always trying to imagine my idea of a utopian future. And it's not like I did a lot of research on like utopian dress and ideas of utopia when I was in high school and college and like figured out that like rebirth garments is my idea of utopian fashion. So it's like unlimited choices and like all handmade and made to your exact measurements and to your exact body. It's not like the uniform of like, everybody wears the same gray sweatsuit. (laughs) It's like, yeah, ultimate choice and ultimate autonomy to me is what utopia would be. And like, not homogeny, like showing all of our differences. Cause like, yeah, there are some ideas of space in the future and things like that, where it's like, there's no disabilities. But then it's like, well, then you just live through a eugenics nightmare If that's true. Uh, So I, you know, appreciate versions like an Afrofuturism and stuff like that, where it's like, no, we have our disabilities. It's just like we have our access needs fulfilled.
2: And you've created these garments that are accessible to a wide range of underserved minorities and that have allowed many to finally feel visible and beautiful in their own skin. How does it make you feel that you've created a brand that's able to amplify diversity through fashion?
6: I mean, I feel really good about the clothing line. I mean, I would love to do even more (laughs) and I'm always trying to do even more. So I've been focusing a lot on education for the past two years. I have a partnership with the Chicago Public Library that is my hopes of trying to promote other people to do similar things. Like, I am also very different from people who are usually in the fashion industry because usually there's a lot of trade secrets and like elitism and like cattiness and not wanting to share anything. But I try to be as open source as possible. So I've had tons of people ask me questions about, you know, starting a line. And I've I've known of I think at least three or four businesses that have started actually more than that, more than three or four businesses that have started directly like based off of my business. And I'm like, that's awesome. I would love for Everybody to do do this because, like, I don't think that there should be ownership of just like the idea of making things for everybody. (laughs) Like, that's so ridiculous. So, yeah, I've been working with Chicago Public Library on a queer DIY fashion curriculum called Radical Fit. And you can look at the U Media YouTube page. And there's like right now, I think, 75 videos on there, including how to do like clothing stuff face masks, hair, nails, makeup, accessories. Sandra, aka Collectivo Multipolar, my photographer, did like how to set up your own DIY photo booth, things like that. So like it feels really good to make stuff for people and have them feel so comfortable and feel like good in their body and clothing. But for me, it's like even more exciting to help people start their own businesses that then could do that for so many more people so that's kind of what I've been focusing on lately
2: (laughs) um I think that your brand is one of the brightest and most colorful that I've ever seen but I have a very hard question if you could only wear one color for the rest of your life what color would you choose
6: oh that's easy it would be hot pink
2: (laughs) (laughs) and it would be in every single accessory
6: I I I would love it
2: (laughs) I wonder if like black and white are all right as like as the basic palette and then the only color you could use is hot pink or no I, I would
6: just go ahead and just wear all together. hot pink solids <laughs> head to toe then if if I could only wear one yeah I mean that's what I was wearing when my teacher Romy Crawford was like you're so radically visible and I was like that's the name of the manifesto like I was head to toe in hot hot pink hot pink jeans, hot pink shirt, hot pink blazer, hot pink shoes. And she was like, this is radical visibility. And I'm like, that's the name. So yeah, hot pink has always been my fave. It's been my favorite color my whole life.
2: Where do you see fashion in the future? Spanning from local fashion, um, street fashion to international?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that more big stores are going to die. I mean, I think I just saw an article that said like, 53 Victoria's Secrets are closing this year. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I think that it'd be cool if it was just like so many independent designers or, I mean, like we all used to make our own clothing. So it's a thing that technically a lot of us can do. It's just like the fashion industry has gaslit us into thinking that it's like an impossible thing to do <laughs> so I think more people will be making their own clothing I think a lot more people will be buying smaller and like I didn't want to do this when I started but like have a like a non-profit branch of Rebirth Garments so that I can I already do sliding scale and like free garments a lot but like since the pandemic I've been like really wanting to do a lot more and I think we gave away around like 11,000 masks since the pandemic. So I'm like, yeah, really into making things accessible in a free way for people who need it. So, I mean, hopefully there'll be more resources like that. Yeah. I mean, we see that a lot of mutual aid has sprung up since the pandemic. I'm like all for it. But yeah, keeping that going and sustainable and consistent is very important and it is really hard. But I hope that people will also just like get weirder with their clothing, (laughs) like just like try out wearing things in more interesting ways. And I hope it doesn't become too homogenized in the like gray sweatsuit androgyny, like ridiculousness.
2: (laughs) And do you have any words of wisdom for anybody that's looking to start, even if it's the smallest clothing garment business?
6: I think when you're starting out, it's really important to write down what you like stand for, like write your own manifesto of like what your philosophy is, like what your values are so that you can always look back on that and draw from it. Because I know like you can get really sidetracked or like sometimes... People will be like, well, what if you do this? And you're like, I don't know if I'm really interested in that. But like me having my manifesto makes it so easy for me to be like, this doesn't go with my vision, so I'm not doing it. Or if it's not going exactly with my vision, like maybe we can make your space accessible or things like that or like if you want a garment from me and it's like not something I'm interested in then you have to pay me a lot of money (laughs) like some things like that like just so that you like stay on track for what you believe in at least for me that's worked out really well and people tend to really respect me for always like sticking to my beliefs Even though when I was younger, I had a lot of adults like yelling at me for it. And like, yeah, I guess other advice for is like, if you're a young person, like adults are so damaging (laughs) to young people and they don't know anything. They're just like you, (laughs) but they just pretend that they know more. The adultism is just like ridiculous. Adults can say so many horrible things, but it's like, if you, if you think that they're Saying something that's terrible or racist or ableist, like they probably are, and you shouldn't listen to them.
2: What celebrity or public figure would you love to style for an event or red carpet or anything?
6: Lucy Lawless, just because she's Cena the Warrior Princess and she's my queer root. But I think also Missy Elliott (laughs) would be a dream. So yeah, those are my top hopes in life. But I have been lucky in that a lot of the folks that I really look up to that are in like at least the disability world I've been able to dress already. So that's really nice.
2: Lastly, where can people find you?
6: Yeah, you can find me at rebirthgarments.com or at rebirthgarments, just like smushed into one word on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Instagram's probably the best bet. If you want to reach out to me, TikTok, I'm terrified. (laughs) It's too scary. And I also have a Facebook page. If you look at Chicago Public Libraries, Umedia, Chicago, Instagram, or YouTube, you can see me there a lot, too. Yay,
2: Thank you so much, Skye. We appreciate your time and speaking with us today and for having such a passionate conversation with us about fashion. Unfortunately, that was our last interview for the entire radio show, but we hope that you all walked away with maybe some more knowledge on fashion that you didn't know before or have a new appreciation for the love and effort that goes behind our everyday garments and the craft that is fashion. We also want to give a huge thanks and shout out to the humans of the fashion industry that we featured on today's show, Zapora, Miguel, Jamie, and Sky. And to our What's Up team, August, Brian, Jenny, and myself, Emmanuel, And of course, our amazing instructor, Stephanie. Don't forget that you were listening to WLPN, LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio. And this was What's Up, Humans of the Fashion Industry.
1: And that's the conclusion of our program. Brought to you by the fine folks at... That... Oh, not you again. No.
2: And hey, yo, who let her back in? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed whatever it is you just heard. Heartwarming interviews, tear-jerking stories, magnificent music, and the sound of our voices.
2: Because God knows that this is the best content on the airwaves.
1: Don't forget to follow YOLO on all their social medias at YOLO Kali. And you can find all our audio content on SoundCloud, Mixcloud, and Apple Podcasts. We bougie like that.
3: Well, that's it. Bye. See you next Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. for another episode of What's Up? What's Up? What's up? What's up?